Welcome to ASRM Today Book Review, a podcast that interviews the authors who dive deeper into the field of reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and on this episode of the Book Review, we are talking with Dr. Randy Hutter Epstein, author of Get Me Out, who's an adjunct professor at Columbia University, a lecturer at Yale University, and the writer-in-residence at Yale Medical School. Her writing often appears in the New York Times. Her latest book, which we're going to get into today, is Aroused, the history of hormones and how they control just about everything. Doctor, welcome to the book review. Thanks so much for inviting me. Now, I I have to ask right away, because it really is a history. (laughs) The construction of the book is actually linear. And my mind went to almost genealogical uh, based on how you were trying to construct going back as far as you could, you know, to find the first kernel of information and then building it out from there. What was the motivation to go in that direction? I think I've always been interested in science and society. So, you know, as, as we all know, medical progress doesn't happen in a vacuum. Ideas just don't burst into people's heads. They're influenced by what's going on in the world at that time oftentimes by patient activism or other things that might not have anything to do with medicine, but are sort of getting people to think in a certain way. And so for me, the chronology was more about like what was going on in the 1920s. So what was going on? What was life like in the 1920s? That then if you were a researcher in a lab, what were those influences that were going on to direct research in that direction? And I do think um, each chapter sort of then allows people to see where we came and what we're what we're do what we think now. But I do think it's very important to get the context of history to allow us to see where we may have gone in the wrong direction, where we made a leap forward, because I think it helps us understand what's going on today. Oh, I completely agree. And and um, I wanted to take a step back just for a moment and, and for our audience too. Um, why endocrinology for you? What was the draw? Well, I mean, it is super fascinating subject, but it, I really got into all of this in a circuitous way for my first book. So my first book, Get Me Out, is a history of childbirth. And I was interested in that subject because I was very interested in doctor-patient relationships and what is going on that when trust is built, when trust is broken. And I ended up going towards OBGYN and pregnancy in that book because I think it sets up a very different kind of doctor-patient relationship because most of the time the woman is healthy, not all, but usually you're talking about a healthy woman who is attempting to get pregnant or needs help getting pregnant. And that puts her in a different situation than if you are in pain or very ill. It's a very different relationship with your doctor. So I really, that's what got me into um, my first book. And while I was looking at history of childbirth, you can't study history of childbirth without delving into what do we know about estrogen and progesterone and HCG and all these other hormones that are that have to do with fertility. So then I was started to look at, wow, this is a fascinating subject, endocrinology. Um, I can't get all of that into my first book. So that sort of led me into looking at, you know, why do we call growth hormone growth hormone when it does so many other things in the body? How did that come about? And, and I guess the other thing is I'm fascinated with the way that we as people 
want so badly to be able to control every aspect of our health. It's very hard for us to feel that we're not always in control and we're shocked when bad things happen. And it's like, I was eating healthy or I actually did go for a run this morning. And so I think in in my first book with pregnancy, I was very interested in when did we become such control freaks about pregnancy? Was it like 1975? Was it 1960? And actually it goes back to like Adam and Eve. We always were. We just always felt that we could control this uncontrollable process. And I would say that same thread is for hormones because every time we learn about something inherent in the body that this is, oh, this has a receptor for this hormone. Or this is, we didn't realize these two hormones interact. There's that then I think human inclination to say, okay, and now how can we use that to control something we weren't able to control? How can we go from being good to great? How can we go from being really healthy to really, really more than healthy? And I'm fascinated with this drive that we have to do that. And then again, I'm also, and then I do have to say from the science point of view, I am utterly, utterly fascinated that hormones come in such teeny, tiny little pockets and yet pack a powerful punch. I mean, it's just, to me, it's astonishing. Yeah, at one point there's there's one story in the book about the pituitary and I don't have a medical background. And so as, as I was reading it, I went, oh my goodness, really? Like, like you could have that many of them, you know, all all saved up and all stored up, and it just it 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 was pretty mind expanding. Um, the book walks us through narratives that are at times dark and at times lighter. I, I was curious about how did you choose the stories of the people, like the fat lady and the heartbreak of the brown dog, and how many did you actually go through? I mean, in in making these decisions. I did go through a lot of stories and then you can't have all of them in the book. You know, I try not to be too dark, but then there are certain chapters that you can't avoid. So I I tried to lighten up and have lighter things or wackier things or more fun things combined with some of the darker, darker pieces of history that you can't avoid. So I think in terms of, One of the dark chapters is a woman who was so willing to share her story, and she represents so many people who was born um, what they used to call a hermaphrodite. She had both testy and ovarian tissue in her. And there's just a horrific history of these people that have a difference in their sexual development, but it doesn't normally lead to sickness. It doesn't normally make them ill. They're just not typical. And the history for this woman was getting some surgeries so that she could look normal. And there's surgeries like removing her clitoris that would affect her sex life. It's hard not to write about that without it being dark and angry. But I also think it's very important because there are children born with developmental differences today. And I think it's important for people to be aware of that dark history and also to know when their child may and also may not need need surgery or need anything. I do try to mix it up with some lighter things like oxytocin 
mom, baby, love, and things like that. So then we can lighten it up. I don't think people want to go from chapter to chapter of reading every horror story of everything we've done in medicine, because there have been some wonderful steps forward, too. As you balance that light and that dark in these stories, you're also at the same time building up the actual historical fact of, you know, how these things in endocrinology came about. And uh, your writing style reminds me a lot of the writer Mary Roach, who also is, a, is sort of an investigative journalist writer. She's written books about how we treat dead bodies and things of that nature. And I was, I was just very pleasantly surprised. Also, your use of cursing. Um, which I don't get a lot of times when I'm when I'm here on the book review with we <laughs> with the, with some of the books we review. So I was I was just like, oh, this is refreshing. But it gave it, an, and I say that in a in a light way. It 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 just as just as a general reader and separating myself out that I'm I'm reading this as as an assign you know to to do this interview and to do all these things. You know, there is a comfort in the way that you are constructing your prose that is not talking down to anyone. You're, you're conveying information very clearly. And whether you're a patient or a MD or whoever, you know, I, I believe that the, that the book really communicates well on all of those levels. D- do you ever have to think about that when you're writing or, or is that just part of your natural, your natural style? Oh, I struggle with it. I, I, um, I always wanted to be able to completely lie and say, it just flowed. Just the information came and it just flowed on the paper. I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Um, I think I struggle, among the many things I struggle with, um, is number one is getting the information accurately written. Um, so I, I, I turn to a lot of scientists and doctor friends who are experts in that area to go over because sometimes I might think I'm just going to switch this verb to that verb, but it may misconstrue even in the tiniest way, something that maybe a lay reader might not pick up, but a scientist would. So I do not want my scientist readers to be like, wow, that's not exactly the way this is. Now, of course, things do get lost in the simplification. I do leave out some information, but I struggle with figuring out what is the truth. I think it's very important also to, and I feel very strongly for lay readers to understand the uncertainty of science. Yes, sometimes scientists make mistakes, but oftentimes it's the process of this is right, this isn't right. Here's an idea, let's do an experiment. Oh, actually, this is our hypothesis is wrong, which doesn't mean the scientists were stupid or shouldn't have done that experiment. That's part of learning process. And so that's the information I wanna to try to convey. And then, um, how do I make this into a story? Um, so usually when I write on my drafts, sometimes I have in big red letters like topic, ramifications and what's your story and I say this when I teach also um, you know your your topic could be growth hormone or oxytocin or whatever your topic is but then you need a story because we like I mean all of us want to hear stories Um, so sometimes that's my struggle is is finding the story getting someone willing to speak about their story and then how do I slowly drip the science in so it doesn't feel like you're reading a textbook. 
So did it just flow? Absolutely not. And there's a lot of writing and rewriting and and getting, and I, and I also, so on the one hand, I like to have scientists look over what I've done, but then I like to have friends who don't know anything about medicine or science who will say, oh, you lost me here, or I have no idea what a neuron is, or, you know, so sometimes when I don't realize that I'm not explaining something well enough. Well, I, w- I once went to a, uh, a talk by David Sedaris. And he said that somebody asked him about his writing process. And he said, look, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I just, the whatever published piece of the year that we saw him that just got published uh, in the New York or whatever, he said, I did 27 drafts. I love hearing that. I, I know. It, it, it's I'm very huge, comforting. I'm a huge David Sedaris fan. Huge. Um, but I also, my new thing is, I think... And maybe people in your audience are going to say that's not true. But I tend to think if people say, oh, it just flowed, I just wrote a draft and it came out, they're either not being completely honest or maybe they did just write one draft and then someone else kept rewriting it for them. I just think um, unless you have a, I don't know, my, my brain isn't that clearly focused and it's kind of all over the place it's very sometimes I'm not exactly sure what my point is and or I'm so excited about the information and about the story that I just want to tell you every single thing I've learned and every little quote about this person um and then it takes me a second and third and fourth draft to realize that my audience may not quite be as excited as I am and I need to omit a lot of stuff well, that's interesting you bring that up because I was going to ask, do you, do you have a favorite story from your research for this book that did not uh, uh, make the book based on your, on your process you just described? Yeah, interesting. Um, I mean, there's a lot, but one that comes to mind, yeah, there's a lot. Like, and I saved them all, so I could probably just do a Google search on my earlier drafts. But one story that I think spotlights how medicine worked before informed consent and also what we knew and did not know about endocrinology is the story that Dr. Robert Blizzard told me. He has since died. He lived well into his 90s. He was, I just want to say, he was a wonderful, wonderful pediatric endocrinologist. So well-loved. Now, this tidbit isn't in my book, but I still think it's kind of fun to hear. So well-loved that when I would interview him, when he was in his 80s, And he would tell me stories of some of his patients who had endocrine issues. He would say things like, hmm, I haven't heard from them in about a year. He kept in touch with so many of his patients. I spoke to one patient that said to this day, this patient was like in his 60s. If he really is worried about something health-wise, he will um, still call Bob Lizard to ask him to make sure. So that's the kind of doctor he was. So that's just background to say he did something that would never be acceptable and wouldn't happen um, in this day and age. When he first started, Dr. Blizzard shared with me a story from when he started as a fellow. So after residency as a fellow in pediatric endocrinology with Lawson Wilkins, basically there wasn't a field of pediatric endocrinology then. They were the two leaders. I'll try to make the story shorter, but a mom from Florida came up to Hopkins and said, John Hopkins, 
And she felt that her daughter wasn't growing. Her daughter was about two or three years old. It was before they could do tests. They couldn't measure growth hormone. This was in about early 50s. And the pop lizard thought maybe he could do something to help this little girl who didn't just look short. She almost had a cherubic. She didn't look like she was maturing the way a toddler should. So he said to the mother, I think I want to try something. They had just isolated growth hormone from animals. It had not yet been used in humans yet. And they were testing animal growth hormone on other animals. And there were studies that showed injecting dog growth hormone into other dogs helped them grow. So he asked his advisor his, if he could get from a lab in California that had isolated growth hormone from cows, if he could get some of this growth hormone and give it to this little girl. His supervisor did not go through any informed consent, nothing. And his supervisor said, sure. He said to the mother, I want to try something on your little girl. Can she, she'll have to stay in the hospital for a few months, but I want to try something. And the mother said, sure. He didn't explain to the mother what he was going to be doing, what he was going to be injecting his child with. He just did it. Now, again, he wasn't doing this weird experiment. He was, he thought he was doing something out of the goodness of his own heart. He thought it made sense. He also fed her on a diet of high in milk and dairy, and well, milk is dairy and protein, and thought that that would help also. He did everything, measuring her electrolytes, monitoring her, giving her these injections. And then after two months, it didn't work. So he had to say to the mother, sorry, it didn't work. Right after he did this experiment, there were studies showing that Growth hormone from humans helped other humans grow, but you can't cross species with growth hormone. But there was more to it because while he, I think he ended up giving her some human growth hormone that he was able to get, she still didn't grow. He found out many years later, 15 years later, when he was keeping up with this family, that this little girl actually had a receptor defect. Called it's Laren syndrome. So no matter even if she had gotten the most purified human growth hormone synthetic in in you know the 1990s, she would never have grown because her body is just resistant to growth hormone. Anyhow, that's a long-winded story. It didn't go in the book, but for me, it really showed how medicine worked then. Um, you can look back and say what an awful doctor to just be experimenting on this little girl, but he felt he was doing everything the right way and trying desperately to give this family hope. And it was the way it was done in the 1950s. There was no informed consent review boards. The parents did not say to the doctors, what are you doing? You know, that was the time when doctors thought, I don't need to explain to you. You didn't go to medical school. I'm just going to try something. So that did not go in the book because the story of growth hormone just has so many stories in it. And the focus of my chapter was really about some of the issues with pituitary growth hormone before we had synthetic. Um, so that kind of was an outlier story. So it's a very long-winded answer to your short question. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, before we're out of time, I do want to ask you, is there anything you're working on now that people should check out in the future? Yes. Thanks for asking. I'm actually working on a book about the science of stress. 
And this came about before the pandemic, before we were all talking about how stressed out we are, even though we were. It came about because when I was looking at some some studies on cortisol, which we think of as the stress hormone, I realized, you know what, there's more to it. There's more to stress than just cortisol. And there's more to cortisol than just stress. So that's what led me on to this latest book project. And it's not just all about traumatic stress and people that have suffered. We all need stress too. So even though I, even though the book is the science of stress, in some ways I look at, I think of it as how our bodies adapt. So we adapt when we're stressed for an exam by like getting that good stress focus. Um, but too much bombardment of stress can and wither away our resources. So it's really, it's, 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 it's um, looking at what we know and what we don't know and what's myth and, and how our bodies and animals' bodies and other bodies do adapt when things happen and how we sometimes don't adapt. You've got me hooked. And I'm sure, I'm sure listeners are hooked now too. And and you, I, hopefully you you'll be able to come back to the book review uh, once that gets published. We can have a further discussion about it. My guest today has been Dr. Randy Hutter Epstein. Her new book is Aroused: The History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything. It's available everywhere you can get your media. Dr. Epstein, again, thank you so much for being on the ASRM Today Book Review. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. Please subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is the ASRM Book Review. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.